All right, well, we are in week four, a final week of our series on work that has been partnered with uh, our preaching schedule on Sundays. We're going to deviate from that pattern next week. We'll be doing a, a series here that is different uh, from what we're doing on Sunday morning, but I hope you'll be excited about both of what we're doing. But today, we're going to talk about looking at our work as a response to God rather than making work a God. Now, so often in our lives, what we do is we elevate work to a place that, that it really doesn't belong. And if you remember from Sunday, or if you weren't there, I encourage you to go back and watch. We do this kind of swap where we take work, which is a tool to serve God, and we turn work into a God, and then ask God to be a tool to serve us. I mean, how often, even in our prayer life, is that our approach, right? You know, God, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to give to you, I'm going to serve to you, but you better bring in your end of the bargain, right? Like, you better get me that promotion, you better give me that raise, God, you better give me that satisfaction, God, you better deal with this problem at work. And sure, we don't necessarily say those words, we... we often are smart enough to be more reverent than that, but I will give you a little clue here. God knows your heart. And so we really should just be often, uh, honest with God with what's in our heart so that God can work on what's in our heart. And we've got to be so very careful that we don't elevate work to a place of God and demote God to a place of being a tool, but we put those in the proper perspective. Because it, ultimately what God calls us to you know, Colossians 3.17, and all the things you do, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. In our work and everything we do is to be an act of worship to God. But in order to do that, I've got to make sure that I put it in its proper place and don't make it a God. And so I thought about a gentleman who, in Scripture, struggled with this just like we do. And we talked a little bit about this on Sunday uh, but it was Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. If you don't know that story, the uh, son of De King David, uh, thrust into kingship. He comes to God. God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And rather than asking for fame or riches or power or glory, he said, God, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I need wisdom. And then God says, well, because you've asked for wisdom, I'll give you all these other things as well. And God was pleased with him. So this was... This was a good man, uh, a man who, by all accounts, is the wisest man to ever walk the earth. And even this guy struggled with swapping God's position and the position of work and getting them out of alignment. And we discover this in, in one of the, the places of his uh, writings in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers, a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. 
I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was my reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. The two things I want you to notice about Solomon working backwards. Number one is he says, I took delight in all my labor. He liked what he did. He didn't hate his job. It wasn't uh, a burden to him. He enjoyed it. And going back from there, he says, I was greater than anyone in Jerusalem. I look around the room. There, there are business owners in the room. There are uh, incredibly intelligent professionals with lots of letters before and after your name. Uh, there are guys who have done very well for themselves. You don't hold a candle to Solomon. He was amazingly successful. Everything he wanted to accomplish, he accomplished it. Everything he wanted to do, he did. Everything he wanted to experience, he experienced. And then it says, and yet... All of this, literally, it says, was like a vapor. It just went through his fingers. Why? Because he had elevated it to a position that it didn't belong. And there are some things that, that Solomon lists out here through the book of Ecclesiastes that became a God for him, and they do for us as well. And this is, these five things are going to be a, a theme through the teaching this morning. Five things that, that will become quickly a God related to our work. Wealth, power, reputation, four things, and validation. Wealth, power, reputation, and validation. It's so easy for us, and it's a, a slippery slope, right? None of us make a God out of these aware of what we're doing. None of us do it intentionally. We kind of fall into it. I've never met a person who intentionally blows up their life, but we all can find ourselves in that place. And these things are slippery. They're sneaky. You know, Scripture tells us even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. These things look good. They, they look right. They look attractive. They look valuable. And we pursue them. And we, we find ourselves in a place where we're fixated on our 401k or our salary or our budget, or we find ourselves fixated on power and, and how we have control over our circumstances or our situation or our organization or how we can tell somebody to do something and they do it. We can get fixated on our reputation and what people think of us, or for many of us, we get fixated on that feeling of validation. It's why so many men become a workaholic. It's because they feel validated by what they do. It makes me feel important. It makes me feel like I have purpose. And I go home, and, and that's hard. I don't understand that. I'm not sure how to deal with that. I know what I'm doing at work. And people appreciate me. I come home, and I get nagged, or they ask me to you know, do all these things, and it's never good enough, or I've got kids that I, I don't really know what I'm doing. And we can easily fall into that trap of making work an idol because of wealth or power or reputation or validation. These things are like sirens 
and the old stories. They're, they're beautiful. They sound good. But as soon as we say yes to it, we become captive. And we don't really know how to find our way out. So the question is, why are we so vulnerable to these idols? Why is it men in particular are so vulnerable to the idolatry of work? Well, it's actually rooted in something that God has intentionally placed in our hearts, and that's that we have a human drive for life and for purpose. That's a God-given gift to us. The human drive to live, to thrive, to have purpose and meaning. And it's right there in the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It was not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Can you imagine partnering with God and setting up and bringing order to his creation? And from that moment on, it has been a God-given drive in us to partner with God to have a purpose and a meaning, to have a drive to make things happen in his creation. That's what we were created for. Humanity is the culmination of this creation for a reason, that we are to partner with the creator in overseeing it. And what happens is Satan... And his deception and his lies twist it just enough to take that God-given drive and not to make it a tool to serve the God who made us, but to make it a God. Because it is such a passionate drive within us. And we've got to be so very careful. Because we also have another drive that we see from the fall of sin. And that's a drive to be in control rather than to follow. And we see it culminate in Genesis chapter 11 with the, the Tower of Babel. Listen to what happens. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And this is later becomes Babylon. And they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone, and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one, if, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And we don't have time to bring out and teach all the theology of what's taking place here. But a couple of things I do want to highlight for our purposes today. The first, I want you to notice that they use bricks rather than stone. 
Throughout Scripture, God instructs his people, particularly when it comes to our acts of worshiping God, that we use uncarved stone. Why? Because God is the one who provides our path, provides our resources to honor him. But they used bricks rather than stone. Why? Because they wanted to make it on their own. It's often a twisted drive. We have a drive in us to serve with God, to order his creation. And yet sin takes that and says, you don't need God. You'll have more glory if you do it on your own. And so we kind of stiff arm God and we say, I got this. I don't need you. Makes me feel like a man to do it on my own, to say, I did it, right? I mean, it's kind of a value of our country to pull up your bootstraps and do it yourself. Well, that's not the call of God. The second thing that I want us to notice is that they made a tower reaching to the heavens. Now, what were they trying to do? It's often misinterpreted here. They're not trying to be God. They have a theology where they understand that there is a, a land of the, the divine and a land of the human. They're not trying to take the place of God, but they do want to reach God. And the reason that they want to reach the gods is because they had a concept, a worldview, that if they could reach God, then they could manipulate God. They wanted to get to the place of, for them, the place of the gods in their worldview so that they could manipulate it. And that's often what we find ourselves doing. We're not trying to replace God, at least not in our mind. But we think if I do all the right things in the right order, then I can get God to do what I want God to do. Again, that's not the role that God calls us to. He's either God or he's not. And we don't get to swap places. And then the third thing I want you to notice is that the whole thing, the whole pursuit had one purpose to it, one goal, and that was that they wanted to make a name for themselves. We want that glory. We want to be able to make a name for ourselves. Ultimately, we're trying to convince somebody, and I think if you're anything like me, probably the root of it is that I'm trying to convince me that I have worth and value and purpose. And if I can just make it, if I can be accomplished, if somebody respects me, if I can be validated, then maybe at that point I'll believe that I have some worth. And trying to make our names for ourselves, but the whole time we've already been given a name. And this pursuit to try to make a name for ourselves is the, the surest way to be deaf and blind to what God is saying and doing. You know, First John Chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, See what love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. You already have a name. And sometimes these these pursuits that we have to to make something of ourselves and work as if it's going to answer the question that's deep in our soul is the very thing that prevents us from hearing God's voice to say, You're my son. And that you can work out of that identity rather than continuing to try to find that identity. It's the very thing that that makes us often have a victim mentality, to be bitter, to be frustrated, uh, to be 
uh, insistent on our own way is that we do not know who we are and we're trying to discover it when it's already been given to us the whole time. And if we could receive that and know that I am a son of the living God, the, the warrior, the, the leader of God's armies, uh, that he was moving and working in my life and called me to follow him, think of the strength that I could bring to other people if I knew that. So God, will, he will get into our lives and he will mess with our lives out of his great love for us. And what did he do here? He stepped in and he said, listen, if I don't intervene, they're going to accomplish anything they want to. And why is that a bad thing? Because the things that they wanted to accomplish were not good for them. And so much of the time, what we think is good for us is not what's good for us and God will intervene. And here, we don't like this, but the truth is that out of God's love for us to draw us into him, he will sometimes either by his own action or allowing it to happen by not acting, he will allow the very thing that we love to be taken away. And some of us have experienced that. Something that we deeply love that gives us meaning and purpose and drive will be taken away. And we're like, we're yelling at God, we're railing at God, or we leave God and we say, if God, you love me, you wouldn't do that. And God says, it's because I love you that I allowed that to happen. And so much of the time when we get into that position, we want to ask why. God, why would you do this? Why, why? I don't understand. Well, most of those times we're not going to understand. And there's a better question. It's not why, but it's what. God, what are you doing in this? What are you teaching me? What are you trying to lead me to? And I want to open my ears to that. So let me ask you, what is it in your life that tempts you, if you haven't said yes to it, at least it's a temptation, to swap the place of your work and God? Maybe it's wealth. And we don't call it wealth. We like to dress it up. We call it security. I want to have financial security and take care of my family. That's not a bad thing, but if it's the ultimate thing, then you've missed the point. Or, or maybe it's, not, it's power, but we don't call it power. We call it control. I need to be in control. Maybe it's reputation. We don't call it reputation. We call it acceptance. I want to be accepted by others. Or maybe it's validation, but we don't call it validation. We call it worth. Well, let me tell you, God has an answer for all four of those. And let me walk through it real quickly. All right, do you want to have security? This is what God says about that, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And jump ahead to verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you worry by worrying at a single hour to your life? Do you want to have control? Is that a pursuit? Well, this is what God says about control. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, I say, this is Paul speaking, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is, what, this is Paul's way of saying if you want to have freedom to live the life that you want, surrender to the Spirit. Your pursuit of control is the act opposite, exact opposite of what you need because it drives us into the flesh. What about acceptance? What does God say about acceptance? Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us. You'll be accepted. You have a creator of the universe. says, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You're already accepted. Or what about worth? This is what God says about worth in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled to us, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself and Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What greater worth could you have? You are a new creation given the greatest job in all of creation. So we've got to flip it right back side up. God is God. Work is a tool, not the other way around. And it ultimately cannot give us the things that we sometimes are looking for. Listen, Solomon did it better than anybody will ever do it. Got to the end of it and realized it doesn't work. You know, there, there's a, an interview, I will never forget it. Several years ago, Tom Brady, he's on 60 Minutes. He had just won like his third, fourth, fifth Super Bowl, something like that. And they're interviewing him. And he just kind of had this melancholy spirit, this kind of defeated spirit. And they were pressing him on it. And the question was, what's next? What are you looking for? Thinking that he's like, well, it's the next Super Bowl, you know. I mean, and this guy had millions, if not billions of dollars. One of the most famous people on the face of the planet. Uh, men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him. He's married to a supermodel. He had a couple little kids running around. He was the MVP of the Super Bowl. And he said, you know, I thought all of this would feel like so much more. I thought it, it would be, you know, I had arrived. And 
And he's thinking like I'm still driven to the next thing. But what I was thinking was, man, you need Jesus. Because you accomplished it all and it's not fulfilling what you were looking for. And on a different scale, we can do the very same thing if we're not careful. Work is an act of worship. It's not something that we worship. We've got to make sure it's in the proper perspective. We're short on time, but there are some questions I want you to wrestle with this week. And I'd love for you to even grab somebody, have coffee or lunch or breakfast. And think about these three questions. They're there on your table. And I'll close with this for your reflection. Why are we or why am I in a vulnerable position to the idols related to work? Listen, do not sweep over these questions, guys. And just because you're retired doesn't mean you don't have work that is before you. And it can still be the same trap. Why am I in a vulnerable position to the idols related to work? Number two, what am I trying to acquire apart from God? And number three, how can I embrace work as worship rather than an object of worship? Amen.